Amen. Well, in Genesis 2-7, it is recorded that the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Happy dust. That was my sermon title last Sunday morning because um, that is what describes our first father, Adam. Uh, created by God from the dust of the ground. He and his wife Eve were happy in God. They were happy in their work. And they were happy with one another. Um, Those were my three sermon points. Are are you happy? Often we're, we're not very happy. Not with God, not with our work, and not with one another either. And there's a reason for that. There's an explanation for that. For as we progress on through the third chapter to the third chapter of Genesis, we read where God speaks to Adam these portentous words, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, the happy dust of Genesis 2 no longer represents the source of happy life, but rather the ignominious death and futility. And so the sermon title this evening is Dust and Ashes, the Futility of Fallen Life. This is the um, second part of this uh, series that reflect on passages that deal with with dust uh, in, in the scriptures. And so, um, we'll look at this um, and see how it falls out from Genesis 3. Um, Arthur Pink once uh, wrote, uh, The divine record of the fall is the only possible explanation for the present condition of the human race. It alone accounts for the present of evil uh, in a world made Uh, beneficent by a perfect creator. It uh, affords the only adequate explanation for the universality of sin. No empire, no nation, no family, no child, no matter how carefully guarded, is free from sin. The divine record of the fall alone explains the mystery of death. Reject Genesis 3 and we face an insolvable enigma. Accept it. And we have an explanation that meets all the facts, explains the unhappy world we live in, and yet points us to a most encouraging hope. So, we start with um, the temptation, with the sin and separation uh, being the ultimate um, futility of fallen life. Uh, The temptation that the serpent sets before innocent Eve was the temptation of autonomy, by which I mean uh, the offer that she and Adam could be independent of God. They could be like God himself. The, the, The servant suggests that to them. He told them that God was deliberately keeping them in the dark. But they could have knowledge 
of what was right or wrong. They could, they could be like God. They could rule themselves. They could decide for themselves what was, was best or right or wrong for themselves. Autonomy. Uh, independence. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented. Of course, it was all a great, wicked lie and deceit. No one can be like God. But to the malleable heart of Eve, uh, that forbidden fruit uh, was indeed um, uh, fair to the eyes, remember, and, and desirable to make one wise. So she took it and she ate it. And she easily convinced Adam to, to do the same thing. There's no question that, um, that the, um, the, the serpent was a, a, the manifestation of evil, of Satan, a fallen man. angel made himself the enemy of God, who, who hated God, who hated God's people, uh, the apple of God's eye, this innocent couple that was so beloved of the Lord. What better way to strike at God could there have been for Satan to turn away his precious children from his heart, to come between God and his creation, to, to push Adam and Eve into rebellion against God, filling their hearts with fear and distrust and, and anger at the Lord. It must have broken God's heart, if I can speak that way, for him to discover what Satan had done. Adam and Eve were created to live in a state of a simple trust and innocent reliance upon God. No, they, they didn't know many things before the fall. They didn't need to know them, at least at that point in time. They only needed to trust and obey and love God and keep him first in their hearts. But now all of that was spoiled. And you and I live in the wreckage of that spoilage uh, to this day. Well, the result of the sin was um, almost immediately evident to them. Even before the Lord uh, came down and speaks to them, they recognized for the first time that they were naked. And at, at once they felt a new alien sense of shame and embarrassment between them. Uh, they hastily fashioned coverings for themselves. No longer was there that simple innocence and love, but now there was awakened within their hearts seeds of lust and pride and anger and deceit and distrust. And not only to one another, but also toward God. They were ashamed and fearful now of God, their Father. Once there had been this sweet fellowship between the Creator and the creature, now Adam and Eve only felt shame and fear and distrust. And when God comes down and calls them, they're no longer happily waiting for him. They're hiding. The sin of Adam and Eve is set down in Genesis 3 to help us understand the state in which we are in. Because sin has infected every one of it, is replicated and passed down without fail to everyone. Little children don't need to be taught to be selfish or to hit one another or take each other's toys. That's the way the world is. That's what's happening right now in, in, in the Ukraine, isn't it? It's just garden variety stuff, friends. Well, it's the way the world is. So now the relationship between God and man is spoiled. Like Adam and Eve were 
naturally separated from God, alienated from God. Moreover, God says to Adam, in forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said to them, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's precisely what happened. Outside of God's merciful intervention, every one of us is dead. We're spiritually dead. That is, we're dead to God, dead to the things of God. Um, And uh, also, we have this sentence of physical death to come, which leads to eternal death and eternal judgment. And all this hangs over our heads throughout our short lives. And people... Even unregenerate people may sense that there's something missing in their dry, thirsty lives and are naturally uh, are disdainful of God and very distant from God and sometimes fearful of God and fearful of death, as well they might be. So this is what it comes down to, uh, brothers and sisters. By our rebellion from God, we are consigned to a life of death and futility. And frankly, Truthfully, it's a pretty dark picture. Now, having learned the truth, uh, God first addresses the serpent. And here, notice there's no questions or answers. Uh, God does not invite Satan uh, to converse or parlay with him. He simply uh, pronounces uh, judgment. Um, Let's turn to uh, this text and read it together, and then we'll come back uh, to the message. Genesis Uh, Chapter 3. You'll turn in your scriptures to that passage. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. Um, But God uh, said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, uh, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight of the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and gave also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them were both opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden, the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord uh, and the man said, and, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees, um, the Lord God, the presence of the Lord God, the trees in the garden. But when the Lord God called to the man and said to them, where are you? And he said to them, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, 
the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the earth, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for Eve garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, The Lord God sent him out from the garden to Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God speaks first to the serpent. And um, again, no um, conversation, no parlay, no questions or answers. He doesn't invite that. He simply pronounces judgment. He curses Satan. He makes um, man his lifelong enemy and pronounces his eventual destruction at the hands of the Christ, being the seed of the woman who would crush his head in verse 15. Then God turns to the man and to the woman who each receive judgments that relate to their individual spheres of life and their focus. Uh, The woman whose life typically will revolve chiefly around her family, perhaps a husband and children, uh, and will endure painful uh, childbirth. And she will be constitutionally inclined Uh, to jealous manipulation and conflict with her husband, easily critical of him, easily comparing him unfavorably to other men. The man whose life revolves more naturally around his work will now find his livelihood uh, no longer an easy delight and source of joy and fellowship with the Lord, but a continual losing battle against the elements of the earth that only now grudgingly will give forth meager produce. And he will be naturally inclined to treat his wife harshly and unlovingly. His failure to take spiritual responsibility for his family in the case of the actual fall, letting Eve handle negotiations with the serpent. Now that will be typical of a sin that he'll wrestle with throughout his life. With the fall, 
the life of sinners outside of the garden moves from joy and blessing to dust and ashes and ultimate futility of death. Uh, God's words to um, Adam, recorded in verse 19, really say it all, don't they? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The futility of life described here in Genesis 3, and I'm talking chiefly of unregenerated life, that of an unsaved man, is it's not just theology, it's a fact of life. Call it whatever you wish. You can deny the reality of sin or even the very existence of God if you like. You can laugh Genesis 3 to scorn. But the brute fact of death and the sense of futility and emptiness of life is cold reality which, from which men and women have suffered since the garden. The minister standing at the gravesite across from the casket to the open grave says it rightly, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But if that minister is a faithful, godly minister, and if those who are listening are people of faith, um, well, then they might hear what he might also next say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For in the face of saving faith, there is much more to be said to that dead man, uh, about, about that dead man, uh, to the gathered folk. There is the message of Easter. There's the, the empty grave and the dust turning to resurrection life. Now, this evening, um, we're in Genesis 3, and we need to feel the weight of sin and curse and the futility of unredeemed life. God says, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that is clear truth and clearly to be seen everywhere around us. And yet, God is a God of mercy and hope. And even in these stark verses of Genesis 3, even in the proclamation of the curse, there is a great, powerful glimmer, sure glimmer of hope. Well, let me talk about that now. Let me conclude with five uh, hopeful things that we can observe in Genesis 3. And I'm going to address each of them pretty briefly. Uh, We mustn't fail to notice, uh, for the first thing, the simple fact that it is God who graciously takes uh, the initiative and reaching out to sinful Adam and Eve. They, they hear the, the, the sounds of the Lord God in the garden and futilely seek to hide themselves in the presence of God. They had broken the covenant of works, the covenant of life, by deliberately eating the tree of which they had been specifically forbidden to eat. And God was perfectly within his rights to cut them off without a word. But he comes down. And he calls them and he pursues them and he requires them to present themselves and he deals with them fairly and yet graciously as we see. Jesus once said, no one can come to me unless the Father who, draws, uh, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Or to say it in, in other biblical words, we love him because he first loved us. Even from the very uh, moment of the fall and disobedience, the Father uh, demonstrates his love by pursuing and drawing us and calling us to himself. Hallelujah. 
The second evidence of God's mercy uh, and grace interceding or intruding into the futile lives of fallen uh, mankind. And you may be surprised to, me, to hear me say this, but the second um, thing is the curse itself. Uh, for beyond the, the imposition of judgment, the overarching purpose of the sanctions or curses that God imposes is clearly to drive a rebellious Adam and Eve and every one of us back to himself. The agony of childbirth, the struggle of children, the conflicts that arise in marriages, the sweat and toil of daily life, the, the misery of disease and death and heartbreaking disasters. And yes, even that cancerous sense of futility in life all serve to disabuse us of the idea that we ever can truly be independent of God and drives us to repentance and to the cross. I can say it this way, that the hardships of this life, which are the wages of sin against God, are above all else God's means, God's design to either drive you further away from himself in pride and anger and unbelief, or to draw you back to himself in repentance and sorrow, giving you an interest in Christ as the Savior. Which will it be? Our sin and misery must drive us to the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, in this sad third chapter, uh, of, um, in the midst of the dust and ashes, we also have a glorious promise, of which I've already referred, Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Um, and, and what is that, of course, but uh, the Ur promise, the, the promise of, of the destruction of, of Satan and his kingdom. Right there, in the midst of the curse, is the promise of the ages. It's Jesus, who is the seed of the woman. And he has already, at the cross, crushed the enemy under his feet. And in his good time, he will deliver um, he will deliver us um, and he will deliver Satan into the lake of fire and take us to, to himself in heaven. Hallelujah. For another thing, there is another evidence of God's mercy here in Genesis 3, and that is the cherubim. Uh, these fantastical creatures uh, which God installs uh, in um, uh, in the garden to guard the way back into the garden lest Adam and Eve who are expelled be tempted to steal back and get some of the fruit of the tree of life. That would not have been a good thing. That would not have been a gift. Because the tree, remember, is synonymous with eternal life. To eat from the tree was to live forever. In heaven we'll eat from that tree, we're told. But not now. You see, our first parents, for our parents, first parents who have stolen back into the garden and eaten that fruit would not only have frustrated the judgment of God, but it also would have prolonged forever the curse of sinful life in a sinful world. Eternal life in the flesh. Eternally struggling with our sins and with the sins of others. Eternal life in this sinful world. That would be no gift, my friends. That would be would be simply intolerable. Um, when Christians 
especially those who have come to the end of a long, useful life, um, uh, they're ready to die. And, and usually they're, they're quite pleased with the prospect. Um, uh, and they move on uh, to, to the idea of moving on to Christ into a better place. Eternal life in this world, that would not be my dream boat, brothers and sisters. Yeah. So, God, so God appoints um, a cherubim, these creatures, these heavenly creatures, to guard the garden and bring a gracious end uh, to their earthly life. Hallelujah. Well, finally, we can take notice of one the last um, hopeful and positive detail in this third chapter of Genesis, where in verse 21 we read, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here again, God's mercy and love is evident. He, he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of animals. Now, in our text, the Lord himself sacrificed animals and covered Adam and Eve with their skins that reminds us of the animal sacrifices ordained of God in the Old Testament age to point to, to foreshadow what? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, this was the first shedding of blood, an animal sacrifice. And what does the Bible say? But there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Do you see it? God clothed Adam and Eve uh, himself. Uh, He gives us this promise that he would shed his blood, that he would be our righteousness, that, that he alone can cover our sins and reconcile us to himself. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We're told by Paul, do not think to gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. Adam and Eve, the autonomous ones, seek to save themselves uh, with their own hand, to cover themselves with useless leaves of figs, uh, but uh, but God intercedes to clothe them in an acceptable manner. Or to say it another way, The rags of our own works, our own righteousness, the work of our own hands can never save us, can never cover our sin and failure. We're estranged from God. We're puffed up with ourselves and cast out of his presence and lost uh, to paradise forever. We need to be dressed uh, by the Lord God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ that God has provided for his people. So, here's another manner uh, in which Genesis 3 takes us in a quiet, understated uh, sense from the Garden of Eden uh, all the way to Christ and to the cross. Hallelujah. So, these are all evidences then. Faint pictures, faint promises of the grace of God that appeared to us even at the time of our disobedience. God's searching heart that pursues blind sinners, lost sinners, the curse that drives us to Christ, the promise of the Savior to come to Christ, the cherubim that that keeps us from an eternal life of sin and the garments of skins that remind us of the sacrifice of Christ that covers our sin. Sin, separation, the ultimate Uh, futility of life are all very real. They are dust and ashes for sure. But so also is the glorious seed of the woman. So is the Savior. And so is the one whom God raised from the grave. God 
did the, all of this for you. All of this for you who will be driven to throw yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. Let's pray. Father, your word is filled with lovely things. Uh, your word is filled with things that, that we understand by the help of your spirit. Things that speak to us and rejoice our hearts. It also tells us the hard reality of what we understand. Lord, we know what puzzles many of why things are the way they are right now. And yet, Lord, we, we do see these great things of promise and thank you for them. We pray your grace and blessing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.